1: Save some real money on Princeton University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out.
0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Eric LeMay, a host on the New Books Network. Today I interview Martine Prechtel, who's written a book about horses called The Mare and the Mouse. Actually, he's written three books about horses. The subtitle of this one is called Stories of My Horses, Volume One, and there are two more volumes to come. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, I'm not a horse person. Well, I'm not a horse person either. And if you aren't, it doesn't matter. You'll love hearing what Martine has to say. He's an amazing storyteller and a profound teacher. And if you are a horse person, I suspect you'll find Martine's vision of horses moving, rambunctious, insightful, deeply learned, and richly experienced. He may even change the way you understand your horse, and, as importantly, he may also give your horse a better chance to understand you. Here is my conversation with the extraordinary and invaluable Martine Prechtel. I'll tell you right now, you have a a vision of horses that is so different from the one that Americans, modernized Western Americans think of when they think of horses. It's...
1: God, for something. Yes. You ain't seen the worst of it. Wait till the next book. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, the real horses come in there. <laughs> yeah. The, well, the ones here so I'm are glad beautiful. To hear
0: that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, um, I'll say right off for, for people listening, you know, this is, you, you talk about at the beginning that there are horse people and then there are not horse people, but it doesn't matter if you, if you put them around a fire. They'll start talking and things will start to get interesting. And even people that don't think of themselves as horse people like me suddenly realize they have horse stories. They um, do. And you I do. And I, do. I suddenly realize I do. Uh, but but could you tell us about that? Because people, people are going to be listening to this and they're going to be thinking Kentucky Derby and thoroughbreds yeah, and, and girls in special outfits jumping around.
1: <laughs> not just girls, not just
0: girls. And guys, yeah. <laughs>
1: That's very funny. Well, where do we begin? I mean, we might as well read the book. But, I mean, the thing is, okay, first of all, I'm not from east of the Mississippi. I'm also not from east of Texas. I'm also not from east of New Mexico. I'm from northern New Mexico, where the very, very first horses that were ever introduced into North America, actually 11 miles from there, where they were first brought here by, you know, Iberian colonists with all their slave Indians and stuff from uh, Mexico. So the horses that became the horses of the western part of the Americas, northern Mexico and all of Canada, all had their origination in North America anyway, right just a little way from here where I am. So when... Um, When we talk about horses, we're still a little bit closer. I mean, not super close. Don't get me wrong. Things have changed, of course. But to win horses were a way of life, a way of getting around. They were transportation. They were status, but certainly not horse shows, certainly not, you know. I mean, running a horse, I used to run so many races in New Mexico. You'll see that in the next book. But we never ran around these stupid little loops, you know. <laughs> going, <laughs> <laughs> Man, we ran, you know, five miles straight this way up a hill and back again, you know. Real racist. do would kill any of these other horses. And so the, the life of Native Americans in this state and uh, Spanish-American cowboys, who are, the, by the way, the original cowboys, all of those people, that's what I grew up with. So it wasn't about chasing cows and all that. The horse was a totally—I mean—it's just a totally different thing. And so, what people think of horses, you know, that as on the American East Coast and not just America. I mean, you know, in Europe and so on. This all descends from a, a very uh, um, imperial—I have to say—imperialist time, mostly Roman, who are of people who were always trying to control horses, always trying to breed horses for biggerness and this, that, and the other. So, in this book, um. Horses in my life were, you know, like. I mean, it really, literally, I had a couple that were in the in the kitchen; and they actually lived with us, and they come in and go out. And it was a totally, 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 totally utter different thing. So, um, to describe that, most people are very opinionated. But the thing about that is, is that human beings, and in particular Eurasians, anybody that's from China to Ireland. If you take it back 2,000 years, they have very, very similar relationship with horses as we did as uh, young people on these reservations. And um, not that all that different. And uh, you read all of the complaints, for instance, of Romans about Celts and their horses, or you read all the complaints about Greeks and Scythians and their horses. or You read all the complaints about... And, it's, uh, and the Chinese, for instance, they have very little with horses, they always had to hire all of these wild Turkic new tribes and everything to run all their chariots and teach people how to ride and 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 throughout the dynasties different ways but they're always complaining about the freedom and the richness and the capacity of all these quote-unquote unfenced horse people who lived with horses and their livestock, um, you know, on the land. And uh, so, uh, me and my, you know, crazy life that I've lived. Everyone always thinks of me with Mayans and all that sort of thing. And Mayans have a big thing about horses too, but they don't have a big horse culture because it was against the law with the Spaniards. But what I found when I was a kid, anyway, is I knew a lot of, you know, old white cowboys. I mean, we're not talking about these guys you see on, you country singing and all that nonsense. But we're talking about the the real guys that were here. They all all of their cultural uh, horsemanship. Came from um, Mexican Americans, and the Mexican American ones came from Native Americans of northern Mexico, and that all came from Spain. And most of the Spanish stuff comes from North Africa. And I mean, there's uh, like books in, in Mexico you can read. I mean, they know that. But in, in, in North America, they all have everything coming from you know, you know, uh, England or Ireland or something like that. These people didn't have horses at that time. So I'm talking about way long time ago. So the the point is is that when we would get together, whenever you talk with, you know, some guy from New York City or some uh, Chinese fellow and put them all together and start talking about horses, either they start fighting about it, you know, and arguing, <laughs> going all kind of crazy, but nobody just kind of sits there. That Because something about the horses, it makes everybody irrationally opinionated. And if you've ever seen horses like who are kept in corrals and stuff like that, they're always arguing and snapping at each other and kicking and squealing. And so you say, "Oh God, I've got to separate this mare and I've got to put this gelding over here." So I put the, and as soon as you take them away from one another, they're all moaning and whining. Oh, I want to be with my friend. I want to be back where I was. I said, "Well, you were just killing here, What are you talking about?" But they love killing each other, you know. So people are the same way. They act just like horses. When you start talking about horses. That's not true, Martin. Blah, 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 blah. You know, this magazine said this, that, and the other thing. my grandfather, you know, well, my, <laughs> on we go, you know. It's like, for instance, my grandfather on my father's side, he refused, you know, when they, when they put out, um, you know, when cars became very prevalent, he was born in the 1880s, he refused to let even my uncle, my father's older brother, come in with the first, you know, Model T and then the Model A, and he wouldn't have a tractor. And he was a farmer, for God's sake. He used only mules, and he had cart ponies to take all of his stuff to market. He grew grapes for a living, you know, and he, and I mean, till the day he died, horses were well, that was it. Mechanized things, nothing, but he wouldn't have anything to do with riding horses, only pulling horses, like and uh, mules and cart ponies, and you know, you hear this argument in my family, and half the people in my family they never even seen any of it. I mean, they didn't even know anything. I and mean, they weren't there, you know. I mean, this is a long time ago. And yet, there's this very vehement opinion about mules and very vehement opinion about ponies and Hamiltonians and this, that, and the other. So when I grew up, you know, in New Mexico, we didn't have any of those kind of horses. And my mother was a great horsewoman. She's coming with, seen in this book. You can read about that, where that came from. But that's from the other side of the family. And on the reservation, all of these uh, Spanish-descended um, Smaller but very very powerful and beautiful horses uh, were were there, and we were on them all the time, all the time, all the time. So I grew up with that thundering herds, you know, going by the house, but not you know like in the movies. Totally different, totally different. So I thought I'm going to write these stories, uh, and people can get some history, and they can also love it, and they can also start to understand why I'm the way I am. <laughs> so I have mean, that they come to my school, you know, and I sometimes ride my horse into my hall, you know, this big <laughs> adobe hall that holds 300 people. And I have a couple of different horses that are quite very, very, you know, good with people. And I saddle them up in my fancy stuff, and I ride right in the hall, ride right up on the stage. And I'll tell you what, nine times out of ten, I'll be standing on that stage with the horse in front of the mic, and they won't notice there's a horse there until all of a sudden the horse screams in the mic. And everybody goes, oh, my God, it's a horse. And I walked right past them because they had their heads down there talking to each other because they weren't expecting to see a horse in the building. They don't see it, but... I do that on purpose to get them to see the horse in a totally different way. And, um, you know, it kind of makes people crazy. But, you know, you'll hear stories like that. And then I thought, I better write some (laughs) some books to it so they can not feel so sad sitting around, you know, worrying about the world this way and that way. And that there's a lot more to life than just, uh, you know, Elon Musk and satellites. Saying 16 minutes, your butt in space. You know, I mean, there's a lot going
0: on here on Earth that's really amazing. There, there's so much joy in the in the stories, and so much love <laughs> for the horses. And um, thank you. <laughs> and it, but they're You mentioned the horses trying to kill each other, and, and here's maybe something that would surprise you. So I'm reading this, and it, and and there are all these scenes where I think Martin is going to kill himself because you're yeah, riding <laughs> you're riding you're jumping up a mountain and you can't get back the way you you came down or the horse will suddenly yeah, rear the up crown, and too. split open its jaw and then you're you're performing surgery with a horsehair needle
1: yeah horsehair hurt. no not no, the not the needle the. It's a, what do they call a... Suture. cover's needle. But using, a, yeah, suturing them up with their own hair. Which, by the way, in case you didn't know, was what all modern surgery descends from. All the surgery done in Europe up until the 1800s was done with horse hair. I mean, even when they sewed up your appendixitis, they sewed it up with horse hair. And all of the fishing lines, like Mark Twain used to make all his fishing lines out of horse tail hair. And people, they just forgot. I mean, that was the material of choice for a lot of things, and it still is, of course, for violin bows. But um yeah suturing up with a horsehair was a well known i mean i was taught that when i was a little kid i, I saw myself up with them, you know but <laughs> yeah you're right there's all kinds of stuff going on here but those are things that actually happen you know i mean and i left out a lot let me tell you i didn't want you to think i was too crazy but well
0: so so I what is it about the horse here. where we like you know i don't know whether do they call it like modern people risk mitigation or something like you're just like well i'll just i'll just dr- jump over this 400 foot crevice and we'll figure out a way down on the other side um
1: well, when you're young you're doing the same thing you get in a three-ton <laughs> car you get on the freeway everyone's driving 70 miles an hour you know with all uh, a uh, big old tank full of combustibles that would blow you to bits in 15 seconds if you hit the wrong tank You know, and you're going down there and you're just, um, you know, confident that the guys who made the car made it so it will stop when you ask it to, you know, without bashing you through the front windshield. I mean, you know, I mean, (laughs) give me a break, man. I'm only going 45 miles an hour. I'm not going to 85. So I'm like, ah, these people, they're, they're, they're a little out of touch, man. But at the same time, when you love the land and all that, you know, you come up to these crevices. I grew up with them, you know, so I know what's going to crumble and what's not going to crumble, but you never know. You might be going to your death. But living is a whole lot, you know, living with a soul and full of life is a lot better than, than living dead with no soul. You know what I mean? So, there, there was an old cowboy, I don't know if I told you this, but when in the next book you'll read it, not in, the, in the third book, there's a story about uh, I had a fabulous horse I had to shoot him about uh, six years ago. He lived to be 34, but that was the end of it. Man, he was a real character. He was a Spanish Barb. He was one of the reservation wonders. Mm-hmm. And tiny little horse. He was only 13'3". He goes, see, here I go. I'm going to tell you stories story. It's not in the book yet. <laughs> oh, I don't think. You see, it. that's exactly what happened. Anyway. I want to hear it. <laughs> I want to hear it. I did so many things with this. Well, this horse did so many amazing things. And he was so little that all these guys are on their thoroughbreds and their tracaners and their facile Arabs will always just laugh. And Yogi Bhajan, he tried to buy his horse from me so many times. And, you know, I wouldn't sell it to him. I mean, he offered more and more money because he wanted it for a polo pony because he knew he could never lose with this horse. He was so fast and so intrepid and so brave and so crazy.
0: But let me tell you one thing,
1: he was almost impossible to stop. So you had to really know how to do it. So one time there were some people that asked me to demonstrate the old-time horses in some sort of living museum they had south of Santa Fe there. And I said, oh, yeah, anything to ride, man. So I came down and. I was riding around doing all these things and lots of people out there, tourists and what have you. And it was time to, you know, go home in the evening. And so I was just running like a crazy madman across this uh, swale. And I was going up this, by this embankment to take a shortcut to get to my horse trailer. And there was an old, um, what they call here, uh, an irrigation canal. It's sort of like a ditch, but they're very, very effete here. We care a lot about our irrigation canals. That's how we get the water to our fields. But it was overgrown with sacaton, which is a very tall grass, so you couldn't see the ditch, and I didn't actually know it was there. <laughs> no one had used it since the 1700s, but it was seven feet deep, man. You know? And so I'm going long, horses going along. Usually horses, you know, they, they sense a drop, you know, and they'll stop and they won't take you into one. But a little Amariento this time, he was going to jump it, and it was too wide, and we went down, out of sight, into the sacaton, and just disappeared. And as far as the crowd was concerned, you know, we had done a Houdini trick because we were in the midair and all of a sudden, we weren't there anymore. We were on this side of the grass and we were on that side of the grass and we were gone. And everybody started clapping, I guess. I don't know because when I hit the ground, I was not cold. The horse was not cold. They <laughs> hit so hard. Luckily, I didn't break my neck or his. And I guess the horse got up, which is usually very dangerous because when they get up, they usually kill you by breaking your neck, by stepping on it or stepping through your gut, you know, but I wasn't awake to be there for that and this guy, he wandered down the, the ditch, hidden by the grass. Nobody could see it. But there was this one old cowboy guy who I'd never got his name. He saw the whole damn thing from a particular angle. He went down, got my horse, and brought him back and got me to my feet and kind of woke me up. And he says, son, <laughs> I remember this very clearly. Now, son, remember, there's two kinds of riders. There's those that fall off, and there's those that are going to fall off. And the main thing is to feed God by the beauty of your trajectory. Not whether you're going to fall, but how you fall, that matters. And you just filled God's belly all to hell. That was the most beautiful uh, uh, drop out of the sky I'd ever seen in my whole life. <laughs> so he gives me my horse, right? And I'm like waving in the wind. I can hardly stand up. I'm totally blown out. So I climb back up on my old saddle, you know, and I jump out of this ditch. And we kind of, all the people went to their feet and they were cheering and yelling because they thought it was all, you know, a gag, you know. And I'm like, holy Jesus. <laughs> so lucky to be alive. So, you know, I mean, stuff happens, but sometimes God's fed by the way you do it, man. So, yeah, he, God bless that man. I never got his name. I don't know who he was. He was just standing Maybe he was a spirit for all I know, but that's what he told me. <laughs>
0: You, you said in some of your other interviews that, that people sometimes ask you to, Martin, how do you pray? How do you pray? And that sounds like maybe one of the grandest prayers you've ever pulled off.
1: Well, that was just God protecting me. <laughs> no, when I pray, I actually have a praying horse. That's going to come in the third book. You'll mm-hmm. get more of that. There's, there's a certain amount of in this one. But um, I have horses that know all the direction that I pray to and know how to stand in the middle of rivers when I'm praying in the water and up on top of mountains on the side of different uh, hills and different cave areas. And they just know. I don't have to train them. And once I'm uh, giving my offering here, they know to turn to the left, and go all the way to the right, and 180 to the right. And when we're done, they know the song that's coming. They listen to the song. And When the song's finished, we head off to the next stop. So uh, we have what we call praying horses. So we call it being mounted in church, more or less, you know. Mm. So this um, this capacity isn't not unique to me. This is you know something with all the people I grew up when I was a young kid. They, they did that quite a bit, you know. So yeah, anyway, this is just the beginning of of this series because I originally was just going to do it with one one little volume, you know, because it was a mom and pop uh, publisher who you know they inherited a press and they didn't really actually ever put out a book themselves. It was their parents and grandparents. And there were students of mine, and I thought, well, well, let's do the horse book, you know, and then we can have all these other new age guys doing this very heavy stuff over here on the side, and we can do this, and this is also heavy, but it's from a different angle altogether. And so when I got riding it, man, I realized, geez, you know, I've actually done a lot of soft man, and a lot of horses, and this is, after a thousand and a half pages, I, you know, I said, I think we're going to have to bust this up into three, three different books. So that's where we stand now, and this is the first one.
0: Well, I, I want to send people to this one. And I want, to, I want to circle back to what you said about most of the time. If, if horses sense a drop, they'll, they'll stop. They'll save you. There's, there's lots of moments in here where the horses are, are saving you. Um,
1: oh, man, they saved me so many times, but mostly from myself. You know, they didn't. <laughs> uh, I, tell you, I can't believe all the crazy stuff I did as a kid. I laugh out a lot, too. Let me tell you, there's some stuff you won't even believe in. There's some horse things in some of the other books, too, like in um, uh, the books like uh, Benefices, Rosas, and all that. You, you will read about uh, a beautiful little mare I used to have, and oh, I didn't own it. it, was my neighbor's. And she saved me from uh, freezing to death in blizzard. I mean, you know, all just brought me totally home. I had no idea where I was. I was totally lost. And uh, two guys did die up there, you know, on the same blizzard mm-hmm. there, on uh, north of Tauza by San Castrova, But, um, you know... Oh, yeah, no. They, 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 but they saved me in better ways than that. They saved me because it's just this, this feeling of the, the horse underneath you just loved being with you, and you love being with them, and you're on the land. You're not like riding in a, you know, in a bridle path somewhere. It's in the wild. You know, it's just, you're there together, and you're taking all the chances together, and you're living together and being together, and the smell and the taste and the sweat and just the friend, this big, giant heart beating inside this animal and pumping all that blood to carry you across the land, you know, I mean, there's no reason why they should do that, you know, I mean, they <laughs> got to say, put this horse here so this guy can jump on his back, you know, I mean, the first time you see a giraffe, they say, hey, man, let's ride that thing, you know, it's, no, I mean, uh, this is something that is just a gift, you know, so I just wanted to give an idea how it went about it. was a little kid, uh, there was an old man who saved my life. I had busted up my knee pretty bad in doing something running and, and he was a guy who taught me so much about animals and about horses and uh, and about sewing them, you know, sutures like that, and how to shoot them when they're, you know, beyond help, and, and or if you don't have a gun, how to kill them and so forth. He, he was just a, a treasure of all times. And uh, I never say his name any of these books because the natives that I grew up with, I don't even tell the town where I grew up, because they don't want anything ever published about them ever in history. And so far, I've been able to respect that. But I don't want anybody to think I'm, you know, holding out on them. They're, those people are there. But anybody who passes away, we never mention their name. And uh, we, we develop new names for them. But that man was really, I mean, he was just a mentor of all times for me when I was a young guy. And he taught me, you know, to live fully. But he also taught me, you know, what to do when <laughs> when living fully gets you in the jam. So, <laughs> you, well, that's very necessary, you know, <laughs> i tell you what uh yeah he shows up in, well,
0: in, gr- a couple times in the book he's the guy that taught you to make a halter
1: yes uh-huh. yeah well yeah. they used to the cowboys used to call it a squaw halter it's kind of a deprecable word but the indian halter they call it now and like all my kids here and like my kids that are with my family here they always teach them all the things i know you know and i don't need a halter i just zip, 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 and i'm halter you know and um And then when I don't want it, I just pull one little knot, and it's off, and it's gone. So there's just all these things that people know and have known. And uh, it's just, uh, I mean, because, like, when I got around more and more, you know, Anglo people, I guess, you know, the major civilization, the richer, you know, people that have more money and stuff. Having a horse, you know, everybody just thought it was a status thing, you know, or some sort of preference. Where I grew up, it was a necessity. I mean, nobody thought oh, I'm going to get a horse. I'm going to really be, I be like, with white people, it was like having a Lamborghini, you know. I mean, it was like, with us, it was like everybody has at least three horses or four horses, no matter how, you know, poor you are, because we had a little bit of land, you know. And so the idea that, oh, it's very expensive, there's going to be all the vet bills and then all the feed, and then you've got the, you know, all of the farrier, and then you've got all this equipment, and then you've got saddles and bits and combs and sprays and You know all these crazy things. We don't have none of those things. I mean, we made all our own saddles. We made all, which you know, in, in the next book you'll get a better taste of all that sort of thing. We made everything, and we did everything, and we trimmed our own horses' feet. We didn't shoe any of them because the horses we had didn't need shoes. You know, the modern horse has to have shoes. These guys, I mean, horseshoes. If you bring them over, it's like, I can't nail into that. It's too hard. You know. <laughs> I said, okay, don't. Then, you know, just you know, you know. well, it's pretty hard to trim too. Damn it. You know. And I said, well, do your best. And we just, uh, and we even trained our horses to ride without reins, you know, so we could ride them without any head on. So we rode them totally with toe pressure. We didn't ride, you know, sitting, you know, kind of like a stick holding, uh, with our, our little, uh, <laughs> you know, our little spoon with an egg in it, or what did they do? <laughs> a spoon with water. I think they, it's kind of cute, actually. I, I kind of liked it. I tried it once myself. I, very funny. But, um, yeah, so... I'm um, going on and on, but people with horses, I mean, it's unbelievable how they will talk and will tell stories and will never end, and they just love their animals, even the people I don't agree with, you know, I mean, they most of them really actually do like their animals, and they do love the horses, you know, so you just got to give them that.
0: But- well, you say several times in the book that, that horses, if you, if you give them the chance, they'll teach you how to be a, a real person again, that, that there's a way that they can... You know. Well, with a real horse, with a real horse, mm-hmm. with a real horse,
1: with a horse, see, horses are just like people, they get raised in a way that has, we, in, in the American West, we have kind of a facetious phrase we use, which is called horsality, you know, horses that have a personality are... A problem because we got enough problem with people with their personalities what we need is a horse with their own horsality and the horsality is nothing like a personality in other words if they grow up in it, not knowing how to be a horse they're you know just as neurotic just as insane just like the ones a lot of people know about in the big cities or close to them whereas uh, horses that um any kind of horse actually oh i have a beautiful chapter in the next book it's called The Wild Rose. The book's called The Wild Rose and the chapter's called The Wild Rose. It's about a horse that gets indigified and she turns out she was a secretariat uh thoroughbred racehorse uh granddaughter who was absolutely impossible. She couldn't she was too uh, neurotic to even live. She almost killed herself just trying to drink water and drowning, you know? I mean, it's unbelievable. But she came around and uh, it was amazing how that happened. So I think a lot of time what I was trying to say is that the right kind of horses with people who are conducive and not being just total idiots. I mean, you don't start jumping ravines the first day, for God's sake. But, uh, you know, you slowly learn how to relate to something besides your own desires. Because when you try to get a horse to do what you want, they're not going to do it. (laughs) Why should they? It's like trying to get a cat to Come when you say when you whistle, you know. (laughs) Some might do that, you know. But hey, you know, who knows? But you start to learn what it is instead of trying to get what you want. Trying to realize what there is to have and how to live, you know. And start to ride what you're being handled, what you're being handed, instead of trying to make the animal do exactly what you had in mind. Which nine times out of ten wasn't a good idea to begin with, you know. Like half the stuff I did when I was a kid, if the horse had done what I told him, I'd be dead. You know, the horse is not doing that. <laughs> I'm going this way, man, you know, not down this hill in this blizzard. And you're know, tumble to to our damn death. You're a nut. No, we're not doing that. And I'm like, oh, oh, right. Okay, cool. At the same time, you know, we do have to have a relationship of uh, the way we work together. But I'm not a horse trainer, and this book is not about me knowing anything. It's just about what happened.
0: Well, you had you had this horse that, speaking of horses with horsealities, that, that preferred to move up and backwards.
1: Oh God, Shunk man, he was such a. Oh yeah, I got swindled with him on that bought but it was a very funny when I, we start to, you know, wrestling mailboxes nowadays. that.
0: I was gonna funny. say, could, could, would you would you be willing to share with us what a mailbox is like for a horse? What a one of those mailboxes out on the the highway.
1: Well, yeah. Like when you're out on uh, rural routes, you know, they used to have a thing they call a star route. And, you know, where the the person who's delivering your mail, and it used to be in, in New Mexico when I was a kid, believe it or not, I was still down with a wagon and uh, with a horse, you know, up in the mountains. And the uh, mail drivers were really good horsemen. And uh, then, of course, it went to trucks, and I was, these little cars now mostly everybody just used email. <laughs> but, you know, in those days... You have these rural route boxes, and, you know, you have to buy your own. So they sell them, and some of them are very big. If you're expecting to get a lot of packages, you get this gigantic thing that looks like a barn, you know, with a big door. And then, you know, a regular people has got these little dinky little ones, about, you know, foot long. And they're usually stuck on a post, and they're put into the side of the road so the mail carrier can just kind of go up and doesn't have to get out of their vehicle. You know, all those uh, mail-carrying vehicles have the, are like British cars, you know, they have the steering wheel on the on the right side, you know, so mm-hmm. you got to just reach over there and put something in there and and a lady or male lady mostly here and uh, that's that. But with horses, you know, horses who are real horses, I mean, that that is a monster man. You know, he's got a mouth, <laughs> it opens up like that. And you reach inside that mouth and you got all these things that go and these bills, you know, crinkle, crack all And the horse is gone, man, you know, like if this horse is just learning how to be a horse. With horses, you have to realize, you know, they don't have any paws. They don't have any opposable thumbs. They have the ability to get the hell out of, the, out of town. And running and getting away from something is what they do in the wild. And so when anything is threatening to them, they either pull back and or and check it out if they're like a stallion or something. Or if they're a regular horse who's waiting for other horses to tell them what to do, they just they just go. And so... When you're trying to get a horse used to things, a lot of people nowadays what they do is they try to de they call it desensitizing your horse to different stimuli, so they're not afraid of chainsaws or cars or airplanes or, you know, going into a metal box, <laughs> you know, like oh okay, I, I I don't even want to do that, you know, and and or your cell phone going off in your pocket while you're riding down the road that gets you a good bucket I'm used to that. Oh my God, especially if it starts talking, I forget it. <laughs> So you got all these little things, you know. You just gotta you gotta think them out before you get to them. And in our case, the mail going and picking up your mail was a very romantic thing. When I was a kid, all the cowboys used to ride off the ranch, go up to the mailbox, or even to the post office, you know. And you'd lean over and open the box and get your mail. That takes like about six months of training (laughs) to get that horse to be willing to get anywhere near that damn mailbox, much less a whole bunch of them standing there together, because they look just like a animal with a big mouth. He's going to go and bite you and chase you down the road. And so as you read in there, I did have one who actually did chase me down the road. And, um, oh, I'll tell you what, that was a heck of a ride, man. A heck of a ride. There's a guy who saw it. He says, the only thing standing between you and a billion dollars is a video camera. That's <laughs> yes, unbelievable. I so, give me the dollars. I'll do, I don't want the camera, you know. But, yeah, you know, it was all very funny. But a lot of times, things don't turn out so good. You know, people do get killed often. They get run over. I had a friend killed in one of the gallos, you know, in the chicken pools. And it does happen. But, you know, when you're young, it's a whole lot better to, to learn how to live fully and do a good job of it. Because otherwise, when you get old, you've got to tell lies, man. <laughs> See, I don't have to tell any lies. I just tell what happened. And people say, nah, man, he's a liar. No, nah, really, it really happens. So I have all these witnesses. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, kids nowadays they just every they think everything's fake. It's on the on the computer, you know, people can photoshop anything and they make all these movies and all these things and they just think even the people are, are fake. I I'm not. I tell you what, I'm not fake. And these horses were definitely not fake. No, no. like I said, I still got one of them over here. Alive.
0: I think there's a Gaio festival in two days, right? July twenty fourth.
1: Yeah, they just uh, they just finished one up on the 14th. Okay. But because of the COVID and it's on the reservation, they're not going to allow any outsiders to see. I don't think, because they're trying to make sure nobody you know gets infected with anything. But, but yeah, and they're, they're not widely publicized. But yeah, it's so uh, amazing. I, I have a, a horseshoer. Well, oh, he doesn't shoe my horse, but he comes over and trims my uh, my broncs, you know, and the the rougher stock. So, and he was just here yesterday, actually. And uh, Alex is a big New Mexico boy and you know, a big guy. Uh, beautiful guy. And he, he had never seen a guy. But he'd heard of them. So I we put him in contact with all the native guys. And so he was you know, doing all these trims and all these horses. And he said, man, I've been to a lot of rodeos and I've been to a lot of eventing, man. But a, that's nothing compared to what's going on in these things. And it's been going on here all my life. I said, I'll tell you. It's really, I mean, talk about wall jumping and running away from people trying to pull you down. I mean, it's like, I used to love to ride in those dang things, man. But to get a chicken, forget it. You have to be fast, man. But a little dinky horse grows really fast, you can do it, you know. And there's those old guys you got to watch out for, those 40, you know, big old fat 40-year-old guys who are going to knock you off your horse, man. (laughs) <laughs> the little guys you know, can go fast, but them other guys just whomp you right off. There's absolutely no holds barred, you know, and they're just all laughing, having a good time, you know. But, uh, well, we, we listen.
0: Can you backfill a little bit for us? Because I, I, I can hear listeners out there going, What's a guy? What's a guy? <laughs>
1: Buy the book,
0: the, the glasses <laughs> with the whole book, man. It is, it is. <laughs> I'm reading along a, and, you a, know, getting these terms, I don't know. I'm not
1: going to do the gallo here on the on okay. the air, but okay. the, uh, mostly because I'll do it a disservice. you got to go through the whole thing. The word guy of course, I'll do a little bit, is is uh, it's a Spanish word, you know, just like the Italian word, which means rooster, and when, uh, in England, in... Uh, Spain, some parts of Italy, all of North Africa to this day, there's a lot of contests that have to do with what they call fantasia or riding, where you, for instance, you'll have a little ring that's tied from two posts, and you come along with a stick or a spear, and you try to nab that little ring and run off with it, and everybody tries to take it away from you. Uh, Another one of the older versions is to pull a chicken or a rooster, because I don't know, those of you who raise a homestead raiser. I'm not talking about these horrible poultry farms, but people who actually raise, you know, chickens in their backyard or, or raised for beef, for beef, for meat. Then uh, this, um, you know, always end up with a lot of roosters. You know, and the roosters don't lay eggs, so you got to eat them. And um, so, in our village, we would end up with you know 300 to 600 roosters that were really going at it, and waking everybody up every morning. So they have these contests where they get rid of all the roosters by giving them as gifts to one another on certain saints' days so that people had birthdays. And so there's a horse riding contest where the idea is to grab a rooster that's been buried in the ground with his head sticking out, and you run by, but in order to get him, of course, you've got to lean in the saddle or over your horse way close to the ground and get him and pull him out, which takes a little bit of strength, and you're moving at about 30 miles an hour. Get him up there and then get going. Now, the rooster doesn't like this, so he generally starts flapping. And when he flaps, the horse decides this means go, because horses don't really like roosters sitting behind them, flapping in there, and <laughs> then they, vroom, off you go. In the meantime, everybody in the tribe that's, that's mounted and part of this decides, you know, that's when they're supposed to try to take that rooster away from you. And there's this big open part of the outside the village where they do this, and they take off, and the guy uh, who's got the rooster tries to run as fast as he can to his girlfriend's house, which is in uh, Adobe Village, and throw this rooster in the front door. And the girl's mother is supposed to grab this rooster off him and then pluck him and then cook him for the night. In the meantime, the rider, as soon as he does that, everybody stops trying to get the rooster away from him because it means he won that round of it. And this goes three or 400 times in a day. (laughs) Or he runs to his mother's house if he's not lucky enough to have a girlfriend yet. And then the girlfriend, in the evening, she brings this cooked, uh, stewed uh, rooster to the house of the boy's family so that they can eat it, and that's the beginning of courtship. And the old oh, days is how they always did it. And uh, but a lot of time you don't make it to your girlfriend's house, or you don't make it to mama's house because there's some <laughs> big old forty-year-old guy coming up behind you and his little horse, whoom, and he takes that rooster away from you. And of course now it's fair for everybody else to try to take it away from him, and this can really go on for quite a while. And there's some expert writing an unbelievable amount of. Uh, you know, honking and bashing. And then when they run out of roosters, they move to Calico. And that's another story. So I'm going to leave it at that. But it's, uh, you know, most vegans don't like it. And most of the big city people don't get a kick out of it. But uh, all the native people around here, they're avid uh, riders in the gallo. And uh, there's a few Spanish towns that still do it. they still do it in some parts of Spain, too. And actually England, weirdly enough. But But it's very old. I mean, it's probably 3,000 years old kind of contest, you know. It, it's, I wrote in them all the time.
0: Yeah, it's hilarious. I thought the book was over, and I was just reading through the terms. <laughs> <and then. laughs>
1: now we're in the glossary. It's even worse. Exactly. <laughs> well, the next book is even better. The next book is really full of horses that were really the love of my life. This was just the beginning. But that is good, too.
0: Very good. Yeah, yeah. Well, you've never been reined in by by the conventions of bookmaking. You know, your your introductions are big, your acknowledgements are bigger. And uh, there's 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 one, I think there's it's- There's a lot of drawings too. There's, there's beautiful drawings, you know, drawings I mean? which I you do. do. I want everybody to know that. Yeah. Yeah. And you're a painter as well. The covers are just- I
1: mean, sometimes people don't, you know, you're talking about a uh, bit or a saddle and if people are not horse people, they don't know, you can look at the picture too. <laughs>
0: It's true. Also
1: see what it looks like to have me nine feet in the air with a mailbox chasing me on a <laughs> horse.
0: <laughs> I don't think you need to be a horse person for that chapter. And then there are some mysteries. There, there's a horse that, this beautiful, friendly horse that you have this amazing relationship with, but but for some reason, every once in a while, it just decided that it was going to throw you off as vigorously as it could.
1: Oh, Sahalani. Yeah. yeah I mean that one. The one at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, she was amazing, yeah. Yeah, well, she uh, that's the three-hour mare. Really? Well, there, there's a lot of learning in that chapter because um, people don't realize, you know, a lot of, I don't know if you ever looked into it, I mean, hopefully you haven't had to, but if you, like, start reading on horse literature, like modern horse literature in Europe or America and French or Italian, especially English, 99% of all the horse books that you read are, what to do with your problem horse, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, what to do with a horse that won't cross the road? What to do with a horse that won't do... That? What to do with your horse when he won't let you saddle him, you know? And there's all these problem things there, and everybody's having all these problems, and it's like it was pretty comical. And, you know, granted, they have bred horses not to be these giant, uncontrollable, weird-ass things, but the... Uh, with Sahlani, she was uh, one of the first horses I ever owned that was a horse from the reservation. It was not just a, uh, a crossbreed, you know, whatever horse out there. was one of those original Spanish horses. And uh, I had a problem at one point when I tra- uh, trained her, you know, when I started riding her. And I wasn't a trainer, you know. I just basically, you know, slowly talk everybody into doing it and then go for it, and pretty soon we we're, we were going. But uh, <clears throat> she... Um, She'd start bucking, man. And I couldn't figure out. And after a while, I realized it was she started bucking exactly at three hours. <laughs> it was very common. I'd get my grandfather's watch because I didn't have a watch. It was my grandfather's chain watch, you know. And then and when we were getting up on three hours, I'd just stop. And I'd get off and I'd take the saddle off. We'd sit there either drink tea or do nothing and then throw the saddle back on, saddle up. She never bucked again her whole life. And there's a whole story about why that is. And I finally discovered what, what her reasoning was in her head, you know. And so instead of, like, trying to beat her into submission or have her do what I want, I realized the reality. And I, you just said to roll with it, man. That's how she was. And that's how it was going to be. And so you unsaddled it three hours. And if you didn't understand unsaddle it three hours, well, away we go, man. You know, bonka-donka-donka-donka-donka-donk. donka we are going to be bucking, man. And she's going to get you off. That horse, no one was going to stay on that one. <laughs> she didn't do two moves the same in a row, so and she was little man. She said, there you go. <laughs> but you know <laughs> Everybody wonders why I don't have any bottom. If you read this book you're gonna know why. <laughs> People look at me and say, Man, you got a big old chest and you just don't have no no no, no butt. I said, Well, I wore it off, man, you know. Wore it off. All new Mexican men have no bottom.
0: To they're they're they're, the, they're connected to the horse somehow or well, you you say one. It wear be- it
1: off, man. It just, it, just stands, <laughs> it stands, your butt right off, you know? And all that chili we eat, I don't know what it is, man. I remember when I first we first got married, my beautiful wife, and she had come to New Mexico, and we went down to do some things down, uh, see some ceremonies in the village where I grew up, and all the men came out of the sacred house, you know, and everybody's waiting, and she leaned over to me says. You know all these guys, don't you? Yeah. I can't believe it. You guys are like different races and none of you have a butt. None of these guys are you don't have a butt, they don't have a butt. It's just from growing up here, right? That's it, man. That's it. It's just the way it goes. (laughs) And yet the women have these beautiful bottoms and you men have none. That's it. You know, that's how we are.
0: Can, would would you be willing to to talk a little bit more about the land in northern New Mexico? Because every every book I read of yours, it just becomes more magical. Um, mm. It's not the United States. It's 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 something,
1: <laughs> some other place. Yeah, no, New, oh. Me- New Mexico. Most people don't know where New Mexico is. I, I mean, in North America. I, actually, you know what's funny? If you <clears throat> read. Uh, like an encyclopedia Britannica or anything written in French or Russian or even Chinese, they know more about New Mexico than Americans, Because they're just like, I think it's the word Mexico. We're just kind of not not here. There's Arizona, and then there's this kind of no man's land called New Mexico that butts up against Texas. Then there's Colorado, you know, and then there's this kind of like a nondescript place that butts up against Mexico. We're not even here. And we were always used to laugh about that when we were kids because, you know, we had a couple of really famous football players from New Mexico. Jim Brown was one of them. Matter of fact, he married a girlfriend in the town that I was from. And whenever they would announce it on the, you know, when he was playing football, they would always make it like he was from Argentina or something, you know. And he's like, no, I'm from New Mexico. So, well, where exactly is that? <laughs> okay, forget it, you know. But um, New Mexico is, uh, <clears throat> even you look in a guidebook for, like, birds. They will always say, "Oh, this is the Texas lesser goldfinch." I said, "There aren't any in Texas. They're all in New Mexico." "Oh, this is the Texas, you know, what do you call it? Um, horned lizard." Then none of these are in. There aren't any in Texas. They're all in New Mexico. You know, uh, this is the, you know, all these birds that are just rich and richer. People have just kind of written it out of the history, out of the landscape. I remember General Sherman when he was, uh, after after, after, uh, the Civil War, when he was working for Grant, who was president, he came here to uh, New Mexico, and when he left, he said, you know, I think we ought to go back to at war with Mexico and have them take New Mexico back, you know, (laughs) because nothing is the same here as it is anywhere else. But in New Mexico, you have what is known as northern New Mexico, and not northern New Mexico, which is basically middle, central, and southern New Mexico, which are very beautiful places. But they're hot. That's what everybody says. Oh, aren't you really hot down there? Yeah, well, in the summer. In the winter, it's about 18 below, sometimes it gets to 40 below. And it's mm-hmm. about the same as Colorado, you know. And we have uh, lots of pine mountains. We have many fir tree mountains. We have many rivers. We also have lowlands. The lowlands here, right, like where we live are... Uh, With my family right here, we're at about 6,500 feet, which is considered banana belt, and that's the lowest part there is. And then from there, you go up to 13,000 feet. So we have another little ranch. that's up at 9,000 feet. It's a beautiful little snow melt place with uh, beautiful grass and elks and bears and all sorts of stuff. And once in a while, one of those lions tends to eat one of my, my horses, too, I tell you what. Mm. And so, you know, it's not at all like uh, people want it to be. It's uh, how it is. It's full of all sorts of tough little people, who, um, Spanish-American people who came here a long time ago with people from Mexico, and they made a special culture. And then there's uh, 19 different Pueblo Native Americans, and there's five different divisions of Apaches and seven different divisions of and then Navajos. And Hickory patches and uh, most everybody in uh, northern New Mexico, if you scratch their grandmother, it's going to be a Navajo, and if you scratch their grandfather, it's going to be a German and a Comanche. So it's a very, very interesting uh, mix, because the Spanish, when they came here, they, they made most of these towns, they created them in order to have a buffer zone between the people they were slaving, you know, the Numi, when no the Comanches, and the Utes and all that and um, the civilization that these people were trying to put in place. And what happened is is that all these little villages had all of these captives that were made into Heniseros who were to keep their relatives from raiding the rest of the place. But it didn't work, because what happened is it just indigified all this area and made it totally different than any other place. I mean, we're still using irrigation systems that are ditch irrigation systems that were developed in Persia you know, in the 900s and brought by the Spaniards. And, and so the actual acequia, the, the uh, irrigation ditch that we are on right now, was actually put in in 1720. And so it's like everything has to do with water here. And so wherever there's a river, there's, you know, people live along those rivers. And then you get often. I think probably, I'm not sure what the actual number is up in northern New Mexico, but I think about 85 percent to 90 percent of the land is public it's not privately owned so it's just open you can go and here we are and there we are you know and so it's uh and it's dry i mean people come from other places and in the winter everyone's horrified because you know all, all the deciduous trees are lose their leaves and you have to go up high to see green but you know once the rains begin god willing they do a little better in this year and of flowers, all kinds of herbal medicines, all sorts of things. And, you know, I grew up in that sort of zone, and you have these uh, rolling um, hills of cobble, and then you'll have these swales that are just flood like, boy, you wouldn't believe this grinding stones when it rains, and then all of these flowers that you never knew were there all of a sudden come out. Mm-hmm. I remember one year was here, I was riding up this uh, royal here, the Lemita, with one, uh, one of my horses now passed away. He's an old 34 year old guy. And we are going along, and God, the whole valley, it was just thousands and thousands of these three-foot-tall bushes with these lavender flowers, and i never seen in my whole life. So I took a couple of them, put in my saddlebag, and I brought it down, and I showed it to my neighbor, who was in her 80s. She says, no, I've never seen any of these, but my mother used to talk about these. So those seeds were sitting in the ground, waiting for so long mm. to come out again. And that's basically northern New Mexico. I mean, things are just hiding in the ground, and springs are spring up, and then they're gone. Uh, there's birds that no one's ever seen before. They're hybridized between this and between that. And uh, I love, as you can see, I I love my New Mexico deeply. But uh, it's I tell you what, you know, politically, at least, well, recently it's not so bad, but it's it's pretty rough going. But um, the land and the people they tend to be pretty much right there with you, and they're always helpful, and they you know. And a lot of time, you you'll meet somebody. And in the next book, I got a, a story about an old guy named Peter Vigil, where I was riding with a old guy to go get some spring water and cross a, a piece of land that was BLM land, you know, Bureau of Land Management, it's public <laughs> land. And this guy comes running up with his little pistol in his, you know, saggy little pants, little skinny old man. There was a whole bunch of cows in the road and on the uh, trail. I was just going to shoot him off so we could go up to the spring. And he says, "Who the hell you think you are?" And I said, "Well, I'm Martin Prado. What's your name?" You know. Blah, blah, blah. He says, "You think you're something?" I said, "Well, my mother told me I was human. I guess that's something." Did she tell you you could cross anybody's land? I said, "No." She said, "I should always ask." Well, this is my land. And I said, "Can I cross it?" Yeah, sure. Come on over. And then he took us in to for coffee and became the best friend I ever had. You know. And there's a typical New Mexico scene where everybody, you know, comes up on you all, you know, like uh, con- contrary and then ends up becoming extremely close. So a lot of people didn't understand how we are, but, you know, we're kind of independent. It's like during COVID, everybody was being isolated. Half the people here didn't even notice. They were like that to begin with, you know. So <laughs> after a while, they start wondering, I guess we better go to town. Why doesn't anybody go into town? Yeah. So, ah, well, you know, crazy.
0: They yeah, you
1: know, the old days are gone, but, you know, some of these things are still going on, and, you know, people always try to move here from, like, other parts of the world, and they always get chewed up and spit out, because, you know, you can't bring permaculture here and try to grow a cabbage. I mean, it's, it's going to mummify, man, you know, so, you got to do it uh, the way it's always been done here for 3,000 and 4,000 years, I'll give it a shot.
0: Well, I, I, we're we're almost out of time, but I want there's there's a bit of question that's just been going around in in my brain. Um, you know, so much of your teaching in, in this book, I don't know, it's storytelling in this book, and in some of the other books, it's teachings. It's about not getting what you want, right? Like the, the horse that doesn't yeah. let you do what you want is the one that saves you. That I'm not sure getting what you want right. lets you be a person. Um, and and I came across one of your teachings where. You, where you talked about the the ritual of the the decoy among the tutu heel and mm-hmm. and that you create it's you know you you create a plan which is what you think should happen even if it's it's not maybe what you want. Oh, I see what you're saying. Huh? Yeah, and then you you don't yes. do it. You do something else.
1: You you agreed agree to not do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, can you can, <clears> you, <throat> I you just it mentioned secret it secret in passing, it. and I would love to hear yeah. more. Well. That's really a good thing to remember about horses, because <laughs> <laughs> that's basically what you end up doing anyway. Is what people want, you know, and what they insist upon, especially when they get hot under the collar about things, usually comes from uh, being terrified. And instead of just sitting back, you know, checking it out, I remember when the the left, uh, ultra left in Guatemala, came in with a great big old. Uh, flee to the old men in the council, which I was part of, even though I was an old man. I didn't have much say, but I was there part of the deal. And they wanted to put in this water system because they thought we were, you know, all the Indians were being very backwards. And, uh, and these guys were native, too, who were bringing this in. They wanted, they were college-educated Indians, you know, and they said, uh, we want this uh, this eight-cylinder water pumping and putting in this big tank and pump water out of the lake so that everybody can have and we're going to put all these tubes into everybody's huts and and the old man says well why do you want to do that so, so the girls don't have to go to the uh the lake every day well why shouldn't they go to the lake every day well it's a lot of hard work for them to get those little you know those clay pots and put them on their heads so well, what's going to happen if they don't carry them their posture is going to go all to hell Plus, they'll never get the news. We won't know what's going on, because the only reason we know what's going on is all the girls go for water to the edge of the lake, and they gossip, and they tell each other what happened, they come back and tell us. So pretty soon, we won't know each other. You know. And so there was this big argument. So the gorillas, they said, well, what do you think we should do then? They said, well, just sit that damn pump here. And they said, well, it's not here. We don't have it yet. I said, well, there you go. Well, bring it and put it in front of our council and just leave it there for a couple of three years till it grows up. It might grow on us. And then if it looks good, we'll put it in. And if it doesn't, well, it can just sit there. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. It was pretty crazy. But the old men in those towns and old women in those towns... Are you with me there?
0: I'm there. I'm listening.
1: Okay, I, was, I lost in the phone. Okay, they uh, every year it was a custom, and it wasn't like something they just thought up one afternoon, to make a plan to do a religious procession and they would do the same procession every year but what they would do every year that was different was they would plan a more incredible one like the one they were supposed to have done a thousand years before (laughs) that they'd always planned to do and never had done and they'd go and they planned it out in great detail you know there was no writing involved in those days you know people didn't write but they had um everybody said okay then when we come here we'll go left there and then we'll put up all of these ones here and they'll put all this candle over here and then we'll throw this one in here, and then we'll put those offerings over here, and then everybody will kneel, and we'll make this prayer here, and then we'll take it right. Everybody said, okay, that's a really good idea. And this will go on for hours. And when I was first, you know, learning, I was I didn't know what was going on. I thought they were actually making a plan, you know. And so they go through all this, and then that was it, and the, plan, and then the meeting was over. And then, of course, two days later, we go to make a procession, and they make it exactly the same way they'd always made it and never even once mentioned the other one. And the reason for that was is because, the idea is of human insistence does have to have something. You have to give it something. You've got to give it the plan. You've got to give it uh, the time of day. You've got to give it an offering, that's like a sacrifice, because if you don't and you try to pull something off that doesn't actually belong to you, that isn't had the permission asked for, then you're going to run into trouble, and then everything is going to go to hell, and people are going to start to fight, and all that's going to happen. At the same time, you still have to have, kneel in front of what the people want, and yet you still have to do what the holies always want you to do. And when it comes to horses, I mean, this is like probably more on uh, in, insistence than anything else. I don't know about your Kentucky Derby horses, okay? There's a couple of real cool ones in there too, by the way. Or any of these crazy show horses, these neurotic insanities that everyone's running around circles. But uh, real horses, you can make all the plans you want in the world, and you just got to make sure that you know none of them are going to work. <laughs> You got to really navigate by what happens, and the one most famous thing about people who work with horses, and one of the famous sayings is, you know, you're going to go into your corral and you feel like going for a ride, or you're going to take this animal out and you're going to halter or put a rope on and make a, um, you know, an Indian halter, and you say, well, I'll just go in there and I'll you know, go saddle up. All of a sudden, for some reason, this horse who you've saddled every day for two years decides you're not going to do that, you know, and he's going to run. He jumps out of the corral. And he goes and gets his buddy over there, and he jumps out of the crowd. Now they're running wild, and, you know, big, shit-eating grins on their face, looking at you like, ha, ha, you think you're going to ride us? Man, we're not riding you. Say, so you've been riding, I've been riding you for two years. Yeah, that was then. This is now, okay. And they're going around in circles. And if you lose your temper, you're going to be getting really skinny, chasing these horses around, trying to find out what to do. But if you don't, all you have to do is just sit down and start laughing. Is that right? Absolutely. Pretty soon, they'll be in your pockets. <laughs> and they'll let you do it because you just gotta roll with it. So one of the famous horse trainer, you know, or at least in our area, is statements is is When you go into a corral you say, "I got all the time in the world. Do whatever you want." Because if you go in and say, "Look, I only got ten minutes, and I gotta go do this ride, and then I gotta come back, and then I gotta go have an interview," Ooh, forget it. <laughs> the horse can smell it. it says, all right, that's what you think. Okay, man, let me show you something. Boom, you has gone. You know. <laughs> I had a horse that could hide, man. That's in the next book. He, uh, I swear to God, he could hide just like a trout in the stream. He was a, he was fourteen three, you know, and he was plenty wide. And he was painted. and He had blue eyes. I mean, how could you hide that, you know? And you would go in the crown where there were trees, and he could hide behind. He could just with the, with the light and the shadow, just turn just the so way you could be staring straight at him and never see him. And it was so amazing. It just blew my mind. But the best thing about him is that when you got on him, he could do the same thing with people. So we used to sneak up on people just to give him a start, you know. And we'd just stand there, and he would just lean this way and lean that way, and they would, they'd be looking straight at you and never see you. And all of a sudden you go, boom, and everybody goes go, ah! You know, so horses inspire a lot of rascaliness, you know. But the thing is, you've got to have a, a certain amount of um, ability to say, I've got to understand that all my plans should probably be mitigated by the by the will of what nature is going to do. And then you've got to roll with that. And if you can roll with that, then, then you're going to be able to have a sense of humor. And if you don't, then if your horse does exactly what you say all the time, that means he's as depressed as you are. But, you know, a lot of times a horse, uh, their uh, things uh, that they do or what they're up to, you've got to look at it in a different way and not psychologize it, but just kind of like, so there's got to be a reason for that kind of thing. It's like, for instance, you'll see in this book, it even says, every, you know, there are, I mean, there are manuals. <laughs> big, thick manuals on how to make your horse not get into a horse tank and muddy up the water. Horses are supposed to muddy up the water. All the wild herds, you see, when they get to a, a pool of water, the first thing they do is slap the mud until it gets, gets cloudy. That's how they get their minerals. You know, they don't get them off of salt lakes, man. You know, off a big salt block from the feed store. And that's what they drink in. Also, it changes the reflectivity of the water so they can see what's behind them. If they lean down, there's some lion wants to map their neck. So if you watch that for a long time, you start realizing, oh, there's a reason for this horse to do it. It's like a parrot, man. You know how many books are about parrots? How to teach your parrot not to waste food. <laughs> parrots <laughs> waste food, man. That's what they do for a living. If you go to the jungle and the parrots are going from tree to tree and the high canopies, you know, these macaws and all these little uh, red-faced parrots, they go to where no other animal can get to because they can fly, and they find all the different things that are ripe or almost ripe, and they eat one bite and they throw it away, and they eat one bite and they throw it away, and they eat one bite and they throw it away. And, of course, this rain of food is coming out of the sky, and so you've got all these peccaries and all these quadimundis and all these raccoons and all these other animals at the bottom following the sound of these birds because they know they're going to be dropping all this food that they're wasting. They're not wasting it. They're feeding the world. Mm. So if you start to look at that in that, that way with the animal horses, I mean, like I say, real horses, not the ones that are just as messed up as the people, you will you learn not only a lot, but you have a good relationship with your animal too, you know, so it's amazing.
0: That's, that, this is beautiful. This is beautiful. Yeah. I've
1: Mar- had so many good horses and so many bad horses, but you know, they're always characters, man. For you themes. Know. Oh God! Okay.
0: Martin, thank you for this conversation and and thank you for your books. And I just want to send a lot of love your way on my behalf. And so much, from the people that I've I've talked to about your books, we just all find them to be amazing and helpful and a light that that leads us in the right direction.
1: Well, I just want people to to know that this book, The Mare and the Mouse, is not a kid's book, although if kids get a kick out of it, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that for me. But it is teaches just as much as any of my other books. And that the fact is, is that uh, I want the people to understand that, you know, the, the life that we lead is very important. I mean, and the beauty is always possible right where you sit. This this book didn't take place three thousand miles away in Guatemala or in the Ukraine or in South America or or in Africa. It took place right here in the United States, and everything that was in there is still in there. And that the the beauty of being able to be alive and care for the uh, being alive and care for the wild and care for the animal is not just about it, uh, about the wild being a resource. It's about this this, this is your actual body. So. All of the teachings that I have, even if they're, you know, been narrowed down into these tiny little sayings or they're in the bigger books, there's a really big book coming, pretty little. It's all the same. These are no different. And some people say, oh, you've gone off in a different direction. No, no, I haven't gone off in any different direction. I've just gone on the other side of your house. You know, <laughs> I, I've been hammering at you from the north, now I'm hammering at you from the east. <laughs> you know, I'm going to be hammering wherever side I can get on and to do the same thing. So There is no difference. It's just the joy of being alive and the gr- deep, deep emotion of, uh, of the loss that we feel for the loss of this kind of uh, capacity to have this joy doesn't mean that it's over. It just means that, that uh, grief of that has to make beauty to fill that hole. And um uh, animals, these horses, I owe them so much, I just I write a book to give them some of their honor. So um, I, thank you for listening.
0: I think when a silversmith says he's hammering at you, that's a whole different thing.
1: Ah that's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, yeah. that's right. That's right. Well you've been reading, that's cool. I'm I'm very proud of that. It makes me feel good.
0: Yeah. They're they're amazing books and um I hope that, that when ones come out in the future, we can have a chat again. We can talk again.
1: Well, if you want to, and God give us all life and no suffering, we certainly will. All oh, blessings, man.
0: Blessings to you. Take care, Martine. You too. Be well. the rain come down. My name is Eric LeMay, and you've been listening to an interview with Martine Prechtel, author of The Mare and the Mouse, Stories of My Horses, Volume 1, here on the New Books Network.